Section thirty of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalinda. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Chapter seven. Containing better reasons than any which have yet appeared for the conduct of Partridge, an apology for the weakness of Jones, and some further anecdotes concerning my landlady. Though Partridge was one of the most superstitious of men, he would hardly perhaps have desired to accompany Jones on his expedition merely from the omens of the joint-stool and the white mare, if his prospect had been no better than to have shared the plunder gained in the field of battle. In fact, when Partridge came to ruminate on the relation he had heard from Jones, he could not so reconcile to himself that Mr. Allworthy should turn his son, for so he most firmly believed him to be, out of doors, for any reason which he had heard assigned. He concluded, therefore, that the whole was a fiction, and that Jones, of whom he had often from his correspondence heard the wildest character, had in reality run away from his father. It came into his head, therefore, that if he could prevail with the young gentleman to return back to his father, he should by that means render a service to Allworthy which would obliterate all his former anger. Nay, indeed, he conceived that very anger was counterfeited, and that Allworthy had sacrificed him to his own reputation. And this suspicion, indeed, he well accounted for, from the tender behaviour of that excellent man to the founding child, from his great severity to Partridge, who, knowing himself to be innocent, could not conceive that any other should think him guilty. Lastly, from the allowance which he had privately received long after the annuity had been publicly taken from him, and which he looked upon as a kind of smart money, or rather by way of atonement for injustice, for it is very uncommon, I believe, for men to ascribe the benefactions they receive to pure charity, when they can possibly impute them to any other motive. If he could by any means, therefore, persuade the young gentleman to return home, he doubted not but that he should again be received into the favour of Allworthy, and well rewarded for his pains nay, and should be again restored to his native country, a restoration which Ulysses himself never wished more heartily than poor Partridge. As for Jones, he was well satisfied with the truth of what the other had asserted, and believed that Partridge had no other inducements but love to him, and zeal for the cause, a blamable want of caution and diffidence in the veracity of others, in which he was highly worthy of censure. To say the truth, there are but two ways which men become possessed of this excellent quality— the one is from long experience, and the other is from nature, which last, I presume, is often meant by genius, or great natural parts, and it is infinitely the better of the two, not only as we are masters of it much earlier in life, but as it is much more infallible and conclusive, for a man who hath been imposed on by ever so many may still hope to find others more honest, whereas he who receives certain necessary admonitions from within, that this is impossible— must have very little understanding indeed, if he ever renders himself liable to be once deceived. As Jones had not this gift from nature, he was too young to have gained it by experience, for at the diffident wisdom which is to be acquired this way, we seldom arrive till very late in life, which is perhaps the reason why some old men are apt to despise the understandings of all those who are a little younger than themselves. Jones spent most part of the day in the company of a new acquaintance. This was no other than the landlord of the house, or rather the husband of the landlady. He had but lately made his descent downstairs, after a long fit of the gout, in which distemper he was generally confined to his room during one half of the year, and during the rest he walked about the house, smoked his pipe, and drank his bottle with his friends, without concerning himself in the least with any kind of business. He had been bred, as they call it, a gentleman, that is, bred up to do nothing, and had spent a very small fortune, which he inherited from an industrious farmer, his uncle, in hunting, horse-racing, and cock-fighting, and had been married by my landlady for certain purposes which he had long since desisted from answering, for which she hated him heartily. 
but as he was a surly kind of fellow, so she contented herself with frequently upbraiding him by disadvantageous comparisons with her first husband, whose praise she had eternally in her mouth, and as she was for the most part mistress of the prophet, so she was satisfied to take upon herself the care and government of the family, and after a long successless struggle, to suffer her husband to be the master of himself. In the evening, when Jones retired to his room, a small dispute arose between this fond couple concerning him. "'What,' says the wife, "'you have been tippling with the gentleman, I see.' "'Yes,' answered the husband, "'we have cracked a bottle together, and a very gentleman-like man he is, and hath a very pretty notion of horse-flesh. Indeed he is young, and hath not seen much of the world, for I believe he hath been at very few horse-races.' "'Oh, ho! he is one of your order, is he?' replied the landlady. "'He must be a gentleman, to be sure, if he is a horse-racer. The devil fetch such gentry. I am sure I wish I have never seen any of them.' I have reason to love horse-racers truly. That you have, says the husband, for I was one, you know. Yes, answered she, you are a pure one indeed. As my first husband used to say, I may put all the good I have ever got by you in my eyes, and see never the worse. Damn your first husband, cries he. Don't damn a better man than yourself, answered the wife. If he had been alive, you durst not have done it. Then you think, he said, I have not so much courage as yourself, for you have damned him often enough in my hearing. "'If I did,' says she, "'I have repented of it many's the good time and oft. "'And if he was so good to forgive me a word spoken in haste or so, "'it doth not become such a one as you to twitter me. "'He was a husband to me, he was, "'and if ever I did make use of an ill word or so in a passion, "'I never called him rascal. "'I should have told a lie if I had called him rascal.' "'Much more,' she said, but not in his hearing, "'for having lighted his pipe he staggered off as fast as he could.' We shall, therefore, transcribe no more of her speech, as it approached still nearer and nearer to a subject too indelicate to find any place in this history. Early in the morning Partridge appeared at the bedside of Jones, ready equipped for the journey, with his knapsack at his back. This was his own workmanship, for besides his other trades he was no indifferent tailor. He had already put up his whole stock of linen in it, consisting of four shirts, to which he now added eight for Mr. Jones, and then packing up the portmanteau, he was departing with it towards his own house, but was stopped in his way by the landlady, who refused to suffer any removals till after the payment of the reckoning. The landlady was, as we have said, absolute governess in these regions. It was therefore necessary to comply with her rules, so the bill was presently writ out, which amounted to a much larger sum than might have been expected from the entertainment which Jones had met with. But here we are obliged to disclose some maxims which publicans hold to be the grand mysteries of their trade. The first is, if they have anything good in their house, which indeed very seldom happens, to produce it only to persons who travel with great equipage. Secondly, to charge the same for the very worst provisions, as if they were the best. And lastly, if any of their guests call but for little, to make them pay a double price for everything they have, so that the amount by the head may be much the same. The bill being made and discharged, Jones set forward with Partridge, carrying his knapsack, nor did the landlady condescend to wish him a good journey, for this was, it seems, an inn frequented by people of fashion, and I know not whence it is, but all those who get their livelihood by people of fashion contract as much insolence to the rest of mankind as if they really belonged to that rank themselves. CHAPTER Eight. Jones arrives at Gloucester and goes to the Bell, the character of that house, and of a petty fogger which he there meets with. Mr. Jones and Partridge, or Little Benjamin, which epithet of Little was perhaps given him ironically, him, he being in reality near six feet high, having left their last quarters in the manner before described, travelled on to Gloucester without meeting any adventure worth relating. 
Being arrived here, they chose for their house of entertainment the sign of the bell, an excellent house indeed, and which I do most seriously recommend to every reader who shall visit this ancient city. The master of it is brother to the great preacher Whitefield, but is absolutely untainted with the pernicious principles of Methodism, or of any other heretical sect. He is indeed a very honest plain man, and in my opinion not likely to create any disturbance either in church or state. His wife hath, I believe, had much pretension to beauty, and is still a very fine woman. Her person and deportment might have made a shining figure in the politest assemblies, but though she must be conscious of this and many other perfections, she seems perfectly contented with, and resigned to, that state of life to which she is called, and this resignation is entirely owing to the prudence and wisdom of her temper, for she is at present as free from any methodistical notions as her husband. I say at present, for she freely confesses that her brother's documents made at first some impression upon her, and that she had put herself to the expense of a long hood, in order to attend the extraordinary emotions of the spirit. But having found, during an experiment of three weeks, no emotions, she says, worth a farthing, she very wisely laid by her hood, and abandoned the sect. To be concise, she is a very friendly, good-natured woman, and so industrious to oblige, that the guests must be of a very morose disposition, who are not extremely well satisfied in her house." Mrs. Whitefield happened to be in the yard when Jones and his attendant marched in. Her sagacity soon discovered in the air of our hero something which distinguished him from the vulgar. She ordered her servants, therefore, immediately to show him into a room, and presently afterwards invited him to dinner with herself, which invitation he very thankfully accepted, for indeed much less agreeable company than that of Mrs. Whitefield, and a much worse entertainment than she had provided, would have been welcome after so long fasting and so long a walk." Besides Mr. Jones and the good governess of the mansion, there sat down at table an attorney of Salisbury, indeed the very same who had brought the news of Mrs. Bliffle's death to Mr. Allworthy, and whose name, which I think we did not before mention, was Dowling. There was likewise present another person, who styled himself a lawyer, and who lived somewhere near Linlinch, in Somersetshire. This fellow, I say, styled himself a lawyer, but was indeed a most vile pettifogger, without sense or knowledge of any kind one of those who may be termed train-bearers to the law, a sort of supernumeraries in the profession, who are the hackneys of attorneys, and will ride more miles for half a crown than a post-boy. During the time of dinner the Somersetshire lawyer recollected the face of Jones, which he had seen at Mr. Allworthy's, for he had often visited in that gentleman's kitchen. He therefore took occasion to inquire after the good family there with that familiarity which would have become an intimate friend or acquaintance of Mr. Allworthy, and indeed he did all in his power to insinuate himself to be such, though he had never had the honour of speaking to any person in that family higher than the butler. Jones answered all his questions with much civility, though he never remembered to have seen the pettifogger before, and though he concluded, from the outward appearance and behaviour of the man, that he usurped a freedom with his betters, to which he was by no means entitled." As the conversation of fellows of this kind is of all others the most detestable to men of any sense, the cloth was no sooner removed than Mr. Jones withdrew, and a little barbarously left poor Mrs. Whitefield to do a penance, which I have often heard Mr. Timothy Harris, and other publicans of good taste, lament, as the severest lot annexed to their calling, namely, that of being obliged to keep company with their guests. Jones had no sooner quitted the room than the pettifogger, in a whispering tone, asked Mrs. Whitefield if she knew who that fine spark was. She answered she had never seen the gentleman before. "'The gentleman, indeed,' replied the pettifogger, "'a pretty gentleman, truly. Why, he's the bastard of a fellow who was hanged for horse-stealing. He was dropped at Squire Allworthy's door, where one of the servants found him in a box so full of rain-water that he would certainly have been drowned, had he not been reserved for another fate.' 
"'Ay, ay, you need not mention it, I protest. "'We understand what that fate is very well,' cries Dowling, with a most facetious grin. "'Well,' continued the other, "'the squire ordered him to be taken in, "'for he is a timbersome man, everybody knows, "'and was afraid of drawing himself into a scrape. "'And there the bastard was bred up, and fed, "'and clothified all to the world like any gentleman, "'and there he got one of the servant-maids with child, "'and persuaded her to swear it to the squire himself, "'and afterwards he broke the arm of one Mr. Thwackham, a clergyman, "'only because he reprimanded him for following whores, "'and afterwards he snapped a pistol at Mr. Bliffill behind his back.' and once when squire allworthy was sick he got a drum and beat it all over the house to prevent him from sleeping and twenty other pranks he hath played for all which about four or five days ago just before i left the country the squire stripped him stark naked and turned him out of doors and very justly too i protest cries dowling i would turn my own son out of doors if he was guilty of half as much and pray what is the name of this pretty gentleman the name on answered the pettifogger why he is called thomas jones "'Jones!' answered Dowling a little eagerly. "'What, Mr. Jones that lived at Mr. Allworthy's? "'Was that the gentleman that dined with us?' "'The very same,' said the other. "'I have heard of that gentleman,' cried Dowling. "'Often, but I never heard any ill character of him.' "'And I am sure,' says Mrs. Whitefield, "'if half of what this gentleman hath said be true, "'Mr. Jones hath the most deceitful countenance I ever saw, "'for sure his looks promise something very different, "'and I must say, for the little I have seen of him, "'he is as civil a well-bred man as he would wish to converse with.' "'Pettifogger, calling to mind that he had not been sworn, "'as he usually was before he gave his evidence, "'now bound what he had declared with so many oaths and imprecations "'that the landlady's ears were shocked.' and she put a stop to his swearing by assuring him of her belief. Upon which he said, I hope, madam, you imagine I would scorn to tell such things of any man, unless I knew them to be true. What interest have I in taking away the reputation of a man who never injured me? I promise you every syllable of what I have said is fact, and the whole country knows it. As Mrs. Whitefield had no reason to suspect that the pettifogger had any motive or temptation to abuse Jones, the reader cannot blame her for believing what he so confidently affirmed with many oaths. She accordingly gave up her skill in physiognomy, and henceforwards conceived so ill an opinion of her guest that she heartily wished him out of her house. This dislike was now farther increased by a report which Mr. Whitefield made from the kitchen, where Partridge had informed the company that though he carried the knapsack and contented himself with staying among servants, while Tom Jones, as he called him, was regaling in the parlour, he was not his servant, but only a friend and companion, and as good a gentleman as Mr. Jones himself. Dowling sat all this while silent, biting his fingers, making faces, grinning, and looking wonderfully arch. At last he opened his lips, and protested that the gentleman looked like another sort of man. He then called for his bill with the utmost haste, declared he must be at Hereford that evening, lamented his great hurry of business, and wished he could divide himself into twenty pieces in order to be at once in twenty places. The petty fogger now likewise departed, and then Jones desired the favour of Mrs. Whitefield's company to drink tea with him, but she refused, and with a manner so different from that which she had received him at dinner, that it a little surprised him. And now he soon perceived her behaviour totally changed, for instead of that natural affability which we have before celebrated, she wore a constrained severity on her countenance which was so disagreeable to Mr. Jones that he resolved, however late, to quit the house that evening. He did indeed account somewhat unfairly for this sudden change. For besides some hard and unjust surmises concerning female fickleness and mutability, he began to suspect that he owed this want of civility to his want of horses, a sort of animals which, as they dirty no sheets, are thought in inns to pay better for their beds than their riders, and are therefore considered as the more desirable company. 
But Mrs. Whitefield, to do her justice, had a much more liberal way of thinking. She was perfectly well-bred, and could be very civil to a gentleman, though he walked on foot. In reality she looked on our hero as a sorry scoundrel, and therefore treated him as such, for which not even Jones himself, had he known as much as the reader, could have blamed her. Nay, on the contrary, he must have approved her conduct, and have esteemed her the more for the disrespect shown towards himself. This is indeed a most aggravating circumstance, which attends depriving men unjustly of their reputation, for a man who is conscious of having an ill character cannot justly be angry with those who neglect and slight him, but ought rather to despise such as affect his conversation, unless where a perfect intimacy must have convinced them that their friend's character hath been falsely and injuriously aspersed. This was not, however, the case of Jones, for as he was a perfect stranger to the truth, so he was with good reason offended at the treatment he received. He therefore paid his reckoning and departed, highly against the will of Mr. Partridge, who, having remonstrated much against it to no purpose, at last condescended to take up his knapsack and to attend his friend. CHAPTER Nine, CONTAINING SEVERAL DIALOGUES BETWEEN JONES AND PARTRIDGE, CONCERNING LOVE, COLD, HUNGER, AND OTHER MATTERS, WITH THE LUCKY AND NARROW ESCAPE OF PARTRIDGE, AS HE WAS ON THE VERY BRINK OF MAKING A FATAL DISCOVERY TO HIS FRIEND. The shadows began now to ascend larger from the high mountains. The feathered creation had betaken themselves to their rest. Now the highest order of mortals were sitting down to their dinners, and the lowest order to their suppers. In a word, the clock struck five just as Mr. Jones took his leave of Gloucester, an hour at which, as it was now midwinter, the dirty fingers of night would have drawn her sable curtain over the universe, had not the moon forbid her, who now, with a face as broad and as red as those of some jolly mortals, who, like her, turned night into day, began to rise from her bed where she had slumbered away the day, in order to sit up all night. Jones had not travelled far before he paid his compliments to that beautiful planet, and, turning to his companion, asked him if he had ever beheld so delicious an evening. Partridge making no ready answer to his question, he proceeded to comment on the beauty of the moon, and repeated some passages from Milton, who hath certainly excelled all other poets in his description of the heavenly luminaries. He then told Partridge the story from the spectator of two lovers who had agreed to entertain themselves when they were at a great distance from each other by repairing at a certain fixed hour to look at the moon, thus pleasing themselves with the thought that they were both employed in contemplating the same object at the same time. Those lovers, added he, must have had souls truly capable of feeling all the tenderness of the sublimest of all human passions. Very probably, cries Partridge, but I envy them more if they had had bodies incapable of feeling cold, for I am almost frozen to death, and am very much afraid I shall lose a piece of my nose before we get to another house of entertainment. Nay, truly, we may well expect some judgment should happen to us for our folly in running away so by night from one of the most excellent inns I have ever set my foot into." I am sure I never saw more good things in my life, and the greatest lord in the land cannot live better in his own house than he may there. And to forsake such a house, and go a-rambling about the country, the lord knows whither, per diva rura viarum, I say nothing for my part. But some people might not have charity enough to conclude we were in our sober senses. Fie upon it, Mr. Partridge, says Jones, have a better heart. Consider you are going to face an enemy, and are you afraid of facing a little cold? I wish indeed we had a guide to advise us which of these roads we should take. May I be so bold, says Partridge, to offer my advice? Interdum stultus opportuna loquitur. Why, which of them, cries Jones, would you recommend? Truly, neither of them, answered Partridge. The only road we can be certain of finding is the road we came. A good hearty pace will bring us back to Gloucester in an hour, but if we go forward the Lord Harry knows when we shall arrive at any place, for I see at least fifty miles before me, and no house in all the way. 
"'You see, indeed, a very fair prospect,' says Jones, "'which receives great additional beauty from the extreme lustre of the moon. "'However, I will keep the left-hand track, "'as that seems to lead directly to those hills "'which we were informed lie not far from Worcester. "'And here, if you are inclined to quit me, you may, and return back again. "'But for my part I am resolved to go forward.' "'It is unkind in you, sir,' says Partridge, "'to suspect me of any such intention. "'What I have advised hath been as much on your account as on my own. "'But since you are determined to go on, "'I am as much determined to follow. "'E pre sequarte.' "'They now travelled some miles without speaking to each other, "'during which suspense of discourse Jones often sighed, "'and Benjamin groaned as bitterly, "'though from a very different reason. "'At length Jones made a full stop, and turning about, cries, who knows, Partridge, but the loveliest creature in the universe may have her eyes now fixed on the very moon which I behold at this instant? Very likely, sir, answered Partridge, and if my eyes were fixed on a good sirloin of roast beef, the devil might take the moon and her horns into the bargain. Did ever Tramontaine make such an answer? cries Jones. Prithee, Partridge, wast thou ever susceptible of love in thy life, or hath time worn away all the traces of it from thy memory? "'Alack a day!' cries Partridge. "'Well would it have been for me if I had never known what love was. "'In fandom regina ubes renovare dolorum. "'I am sure I have tasted all the tenderness and sublimities and bitternesses of the passion.' "'Was your mistress unkind, then?' says Jones. "'Very unkind indeed, sir,' answered Partridge, "'for she married me, and made one of the most confounded wives in the world. "'However, heaven be praised, she's gone.' and if I believed she was in the moon, according to a book I once read, which teaches that to be the receptacle of departed spirits, I would never look at it for fear of seeing her. But I wish, sir, that the moon was a looking-glass for your sake, and that Miss Sophia Western was now placed before it. My dear Partridge, cries Jones, what a thought was there, a thought which I am certain could never have entered into any mind but that of a lover. Oh, Partridge, could I hope once again to see that face? But alas! All those golden dreams are vanished for ever, and my only refuge from future misery is to forget the object of all my former happiness. "'And do you really despair of ever seeing Miss Western again?' answered Partridge. "'If you will follow my advice, I will engage you shall not only see her, but have her in your arms.' "'Ha! Do not awaken a thought of that nature,' cries Jones. "'I have struggled sufficiently to conquer all such wishes already.' "'Nay,' answered Partridge, "'if you do not wish to have your mistress in your arms, you are a most extraordinary lover indeed.' "'Well, well,' says Jones, "'let us avoid this subject. "'But pray, what is your advice?' "'To give it to you in the military phrase, then,' says Partridge, "'as we are soldiers, to the right about. "'Let us return the way we came. "'We may yet reach Gloucester to-night, though late, "'whereas if we proceed we are likely, for aught I see, "'to ramble about for ever without coming either to a house or home. "'I have already told you my resolution is to go on,' answered Jones, "'but I would have you go back.' I am obliged to you for your company hither, and I beg you to accept a guinea as a small instance of my gratitude. Nay, it would be cruel in me to suffer you to go any farther, for to deal plainly with you, my chief end and desire is a glorious death in the service of my king and country. As for your money, replied Partridge, I beg, sir, you will put it up. I will receive none of you at this time, for at present I am, I believe, the richer man of the two. And as your resolution is to go on, so mine is to follow you if you do. "'Nay, now my presence appears absolutely necessary to take care of you, since your intentions are so desperate. For I promise you my views are much more prudent. As you are resolved to fall in battle if you can, so I am resolved as firmly to come to no hurt if I can help it. And indeed I have the comfort to think there will be but little danger, for a popish priest told me the other day the business would soon be over, and he believed without a battle.' "'A popish priest,' cried Jones, "'I have heard, is not always to be believed when he speaks in behalf of his religion.' 
"'Yes, but so far,' answered the other, from speaking in behalf of his religion, he assured me the Catholics did not expect to be any gainers by the change, for that Prince Charles was as good a Protestant as any in England, and that nothing but regard to right made him and the rest of the Popish party to be Jacobites. "'I believe him to be as much a Protestant as I believe he hath any right,' says Jones, "'and I make no doubt of our success, but not without a battle, so that I am not so sanguine as your friend the Popish priest.' "'Nay, to be sure, sir,' answered Partridge, "'all the prophecies I have ever read speak of a great deal of blood to be spilt in the quarrel, and the miller with three thumbs, who is now alive, is to hold the horses of three kings up to his knees in blood. Lord, have mercy upon us all, and send better times.' "'With what stuff and nonsense hast thou filled thy head?' answered Jones. "'This, too, I suppose, comes from the Popish priest. Monsters and prodigies are the proper arguments to support monstrous and absurd doctrines. The cause of King George is the cause of liberty and true religion.' In other words, it is the cause of common sense, my boy, and I warrant you will succeed, though Briarius himself was to rise again with his hundred thumbs and to turn Miller. Partridge made no reply to this. He was indeed cast into the utmost confusion by this declaration of Jones, for to inform the reader of a secret, which he had no proper opportunity of revealing before, Partridge was in truth a Jacobite, and had concluded that Jones was of the same party, and was now proceeding to join the rebels an opinion which was not without foundation, for the tall, long-sided dame mentioned by Hudibras, that many-eyed, many-tongued, many-mouthed, many-eared monster of Virgil, had related the story of the quarrel between Jones and the officer, with the usual regard to truth. She had indeed changed the name of Sophia into that of the pretender, and had reported that drinking his health was the cause for which Jones was knocked down. This partridge had heard, and most firmly believed. Tis no wonder, therefore, that he had thence entertained the above-mentioned opinion of Jones, and which he had almost discovered to him before he found out his own mistake. And at this the reader will be the less inclined to wonder if he pleases to recollect the doubtful phrase in which Jones first communicated his resolution to Mr. Partridge, and indeed, had the words been less ambiguous, Partridge might very well have construed them as he did, being persuaded as he was that the whole nation were of the same inclination in their hearts. Nor did it stagger him that Jones had travelled in the company of soldiers, for he had the same opinion of the army which he had of the rest of the people. But however well affected he might be to James or Charles, he was still much more attached to little Benjamin than to either, for which reason he no sooner discovered the principles of his fellow-traveller than he thought proper to conceal and outwardly give up his own to the man who, on whom he depended for the making his fortune, since he by no means believed the affairs of Jones to be so desperate as they really were with Mr. Allworthy for as he had kept a constant correspondence with some of his neighbours since he left that country, he had heard much, indeed more than was true, of the great affection Mr. Allworthy bore this young man, who, as Partridge had been instructed, was to be that gentleman's heir, and whom, as we have said, he did not in the least doubt to be his son. He imagined, therefore, that whatever quarrel was between them, it would be certainly made up at the return of Mr. Jones, an event from which he promised great advantages, if he could take this opportunity of ingratiating himself with that young gentleman, and if he could by any means be instrumental in procuring his return, he doubted not, as we have before said, but it would as highly advance him in the favour of Mr. Allworthy. We have already observed that he was a very good-natured fellow, and he hath himself declared the violent attachment he had to the person and character of Jones, but possibly the views which I have just before mentioned might likewise have some little share in prompting him to undertake this expedition, at least in urging him to continue it, after he had discovered that his master and himself, like some prudent fathers and sons, though they travelled together in great friendship, had embraced opposite parties. 
I am led into this conjecture by having remarked that though love, friendship, esteem, and such like, have very powerful operations in the human mind, interest, however, is an ingredient seldom omitted by wise men, when they would work others to their own purposes. This is indeed a most excellent medicine, and, like Ward's pill, flies at once to the particular part of the body on which you desire to operate, whether it be the tongue, the hand, or any other member, where it scarce ever fails of immediately producing the desired effect. End of section 30. Recording by Kalinda in Raymond, New Hampshire, on October 28, 2007.